Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast, with me, Simon Walters, assistant editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist. And coming up, could the Tories have had any worse start to their election campaign, Simon? And what actually is Labour's Brexit policy? Keir Starmer has explained, or has tried to explain. <laughs> And The Week Explained, who's the new House of Commons speaker? Don't forget, you can email us with your questions during the week at orderord at dailymail.co.uk and we'll attempt to answer as many as we can during the show. But first, the Conservative Party has not had a great start to its election campaign. The result of a laissez-faire attitude to letting ministers on programmes without supervision, heaven forbid led to this now infamous clip from Jacob Rees-Mogg, the first of more than one gaffe. The tragedy came about because of the cladding, leading to the fire racing up the building, and then was compounded by the stay-put policy. And uh, it seems to me that that is the tragedy of it, that the more one's read over the weekend about the report and about the chances of people surviving... If you just ignore what you're told and leave, you are so much safer. And I I think if either of us were in a fire, whatever the fire brigade said, we would leave the burning building. It just seems the common sense thing to do. Now, the first thing to say about this is anybody who knows Jacob Rees-Mogg knows that there's not a shred of malice in the man's body. However... Was it a completely daft and insensitive thing to say? It certainly was. In the words of Theresa May's former chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, it was incredibly stupid. And Amanda, it's actually done the Tories considerable damage in the opening days, hasn't it? It's a terrible start to their campaign, Simon, because Boris saw the Queen around lunchtime. The official launch of the campaign, even though it feels as though it's been going on forever, is really this evening. And he's this. The whole mood music now is about what Jacob said. And some you can hear when he's speaking that he's so hesitant. He knows this is difficult territory. You know, he the pauses he's making, and for a highly intelligent man like him to make such a blunder and alienate and reinforce the negatives that Tories don't care about people. Mm. I mean, I, I, my information is is at Downing Street. Uh, they've sort of publicly supported him. They're absolutely furious. And I think we probably will have seen the last of Jacob Rees-Mogg in this election campaign. I think they're going to keep him right under wraps and he won't be allowed out, certainly not on his own. Well, it, I mean, what else would you do? Um, it's a bit like that, that ridiculous image of him during the height of the Brexit debate where he was laying on the on the green um, benches of Parliament. He's There's a little chink in this highly intelligent brain that doesn't have common sense. Funny that he was talking about you needed common sense to know what to do in that fire, but actually he doesn't possess it. I mean, doesn't it just remind you of of how politicians and political parties, they go to great trouble to produce manifestos and policies, and this was effectively the Tories the first day in the election campaign, and I don't suppose they imagined that they'd get into a war of words with Stormzy, the rap star, and come off the worst for it. I know, and also just, um, you've got all of the people of Grenfell, you know, it was. It's not just the people who died, but the people, the families, the whole community. And there's a there's a kind of a, a national um, consciousness about it, a bit like there was with Hillsborough in the end. 
And so he hasn't just, he's trod on so many people's feelings. Um, it's a, Simon, it's a disaster. Mm. It's often the case that um, for all the effort parties put into their policies, it's often the gaffes that people remember. I mean, what a funny word that is. I've always thought gaff, it's such a funny word. And, and it's it's French, it's the French word for blunder. Oh, <laughs> and um, it, the, the, the political gaffe, it was coined by a journalist, Michael Kinsley, American journalist, who said a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth, uh, some obvious truth, he isn't supposed to say. Now, uh, I don't think that's quite the case with Jacob, but certainly he was never supposed to say this. But there have been some great political gaffes down the years. There's nothing new. Um, Winston Churchill in the 1945 election, which he lost after winning the war when he famously claimed that the Labour Party would create a Gestapo to implement its policy of reforms. Not a great thing to say. So even even can, the greatest politicians can put their foot in their mouths. It can just be the, the tiniest word, can't it, that, that tips an argument away from you. I mean, I can remember back in um, the 2001 election when we suddenly saw on TV that John Prescott had punched out a voter, a protester at um, one of the rallies, and we all thought, He's done for, but everybody loved it. So sometimes these unplanned things can work to your advantage. But remember, we were talking about the, the Gordon Brown talking mm. about that terrible woman who he said was racist. Oh, that was right. That was in in Rochdale, I think. It was he was overheard. There was a, a rogue mic, which in the modern world are often the everywhere. It's called a mobile phone. And he was in his car, and he'd just been to some little meeting in Rochdale Town Centre, and he'd been assailed by this lady, a very robust lady called Gillian Duffy. That's the and one. In the Mrs. car. Duffy. He called her, who, who was that bigoted woman? And, and my God, that, that caused a stink and it didn't do him any good in that election, which I seem to remember he lost. Yeah. And of course, we just heard that the Welsh Secretary, Alan Cairns, has been forced to resign over another unfortunate gaffe in which there was some question over what he did or didn't know about one of his advisers um, who was involved in uh, in the case in a rape case that collapsed, and uh, as ever, it was an email that caught Cairns out, which suggested he knew more than he'd let on, and he's been forced to resign over this. So the campaign has hardly started. One cabinet minister has spoken in a uh, in an offensive way about the Grenfell disaster and another cabinet minister has resigned over a rape case it's it's extraordinary times and and the problem with this also Simon is that um, both of these cases play into the negatives that the that the Tory party is trying to fight in this election one is that they've got a problem with women and with Boris that that women don't he's got um, poor appalling figures with women and this resignation of the Welsh um, cabinet at uh, Cairns means that this is all about a rape case where he is alleged to have helped the alleged we have to do a lot of alleged in this but it's a story about rape and this guy has obviously done something he felt that he had to resign over that doesn't make women feel comfortable and then of course the other one with Rhys Mogg is the fact that that one of the negatives for Boris and for the Tories is that they're not a nice party and they don't care about ordinary folk so two own goals on the first day of the campaign. It's I mean, extraordinary. If if you're trying to draw some positive out of this, it's that they've dealt with the uh, with the the Welsh secretary pretty quickly. But someone in Tory HQ is going to have to get a grip of this campaign pretty damn quickly. As the election gets underway and the government's Brexit legislation is on hold, who's winning the debate on the most controversial single subject in British political history? 
Well, this week, Shadow Brexit Secretary Sir Keir Starmer went on TV to explain Labour's somewhat illogical policy. Of course we are, um, because we don't want something done. How can it be a really good deal if you're going to vote against it? Well, we're, we're duty-bound to get the best deal we can, and I think that's something that secures our economy and is consistent with the Good why Friday would the EU agreement. Give you, why would the EU give you a good deal if they know that you're going to actively campaign against it? Well, which is Piers, clearly I, what most of you are going to be doing. Well, Piers, I have been talking to the EU, to political leaders across the EU 27 countries. I mean, this really does <clears throat> get to the heart of Labour's Brexit policy or non-policy. Because, I mean, Keir Starmer was flawed. And why was he flawed? On daytime television as well. Uh, It wasn't the Today programme. No, because they have this policy, and insofar as I or anyone can understand it, it's that um, if Corbyn wins the election, he will go back to the EU, renegotiate another deal, so that'll be the third deal that we get from the EU, then there'll be a referendum on whether the British people want, want to accept that deal. But it's not clear whether Corbyn or Keir Starmer or anyone in the Labour Party will campaign in favour of that deal or against that deal. And I think that is about as muddled a policy as I have ever heard. It is crazy, isn't it? And I think in the midst of all of this, you've got Joe Swinson coming up through the middle saying, the leader of the Lib Dems, rather ludicrously, I mean, it did cause a few laughs throughout the nation, I stand before you as your next Prime Minister. Look, with 13 Lib Dem seats, she hasn't got the base to do that. But what she does have is an incredibly clear message, which is they used to have that policy. What was it, Simon, you were saying? Well, oh, can we, I'm not sure we, we can say the word so I just have <laughs> on, on this programme, but the, the, the Liberal policy unveiled by Vince Cable, they all wore T-shirts and had slogans published, it was going to be to Brexit. And I have noticed that since Joe Swinson became leader, she's, she's dropped the profanities yeah. and it simply stopped Brexit. And that is a clear message. It's completely clear. And she says no ifs, no buts. Um, she's not going to die in a ditch. She's not going to do anything like that. She's saying, if we become the major party, if I become prime minister, we will cease the Brexit process and we will stay in Europe. End of story. So you you think that the the point of that is it is at least, unlike Labour, it is a clear policy commitment. Of course, you may well say it goes completely against... We've had a referendum, the country voted to leave, and the Lib Dems are campaigning in this election to reverse the last major democratic decision we took. I think that... uh, I don't want to be too unkind to a young woman who's a new leader of a political um, party in this country, but it does make me um, wonder that... She's a very unsubtle leader. She's, I wouldn't say that she had the brains of Britain. And I think that this is a, it's almost like the block colour dresses she wears. It's one message. It's one. Forget the democracy. Forget, you know, uh, the, all the people, even Lib Dems who voted to leave. Uh, it's just like bulldozing through with a simple message. I think it's rather going to be very, very boring by the end of the campaign. Well, I I have to say I disagree with it there, I think. I think um, given the choice between a clear, simple message of stop Brexit and the complete fog of confusion of Keir Starmer, I think many people will go for a clear, simple message any time. Two words, stop Brexit. I mean, I may not agree with it. It's quite easy to remember. And uh, two words I would say about Joe Swinson, so irritating. And now we have This Week Explained. Who is Lindsay Hoyle? 
it is a he. So Lindsay Hoyle, the 62-year-old former Deputy Speaker, was elected as the successor to John Burko. So Lindsay managed to get his bottom into the Speaker's grand chair for just one day's debate before the end of the Parliament. But who is the new Speaker and what should we expect of him in the future? Here are some of his past interventions. the competition who can shout the loudest. Let's hear the Chancellor. If you don't want to hear your own Chancellor, I'm sure your constituents would understand if you leave to leave the chamber. I suggest nobody wants to leave the chamber. Let us continue. As many of that opinion say aye. Aye. The contrary, no. The ayes have it. The ayes have it. If you only if you buy it. Mr. Wishart, we don't need any extra help just for the moment. Oh, 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 oh. Order! Miss Gibson, it's very good to you all the choir, but what I would say is, I personally don't mind singing, but I certainly can't allow it in the chamber. Let's not this become a circus of the day. Well, that was Sir Lindsay Hoyle. As you can hear, one of the things I love about Sir Lindsay is just his voice, that <laughs> wonderful, warm Lancastrian burr. And, and I was in the Commons that the um, the day after he'd become Speaker, and actually there was a palpable change in the whole atmosphere. Um, John Burko actually did have some virtues in reforming the Commons, but my goodness, he was such a pompous, bad-tempered individual and and with a bit of a reputation for bullying in and out of the chamber. And it felt to me like, you know, when you were at school and that nasty chemistry teacher who'd always bullied you <laughs> finally left and you went to school with a new spring in your step, the Commons felt like that. And I think Lindsay is going to be a great asset because as you could hear from those clips... He's no shrinking violet. He's got a loud voice, but he manages to put people in their place with some humour, warmth and affection. And he reminds me of one of the great speakers, Betty Boothroyd, who I think is Lindsay's hero, who was a Yorkshire woman, Lindsay's a Lancastrian, but similar northern accent and, and warmth. And I think Lindsay is going to be a Betty in trousers. <laughs> I think he's brilliant, Simon. I love the fact that all of his... He's got a menagerie. He's got a tortoise and a couple of dogs and one sadly deceased cat. And they're all named after famous politicians. Yes, and do you know what they're called? I know that the tortoise is called Maggie because she's not for turning after Margaret Thatcher and she can't be tipped over. That's right. And, <laughs> and the parrot is called Boris. <laughs> and apparently, Sir Lindsay has taught Boris... The, the parrot, that is, to say, order, order. <laughs> he's brilliant. But there is just, it, tonally, it's completely different. And I think that he's got a sense, as he said in, in, in the interviews after he was appointed, it's such an honour for him and he wants to do the job with transparent fairness. And that's something we could not say about John Burko. Well, and, and he did. He had a mild dig, I think, at Burko. Yeah. When he took the, in his first comments, he, he talked about... Um, uh, removing the tarnish from the commons. And I think that was just a little slight at the way Burko ha has seen by some to have 
slightly muddied the atmosphere and brought a bit of toxicity in it. But there was also a very moving moment because Lindsay was very close to tears when he made his opening remarks because he referred to his daughter, Natalie, yeah. a, a girl in her 20s who, who, who took her own life in 2017. And it was, it was a very touching moment when, when he said how much he wished she'd been there. But there was also, I mean, actually the highlight of the, the election of the Speaker was a wonderful speech by... The, the guy who Salindi beat, Labour MP Chris Bryant. And in Bryant's speech, it, um, he, he said how if he became Speaker, he would um, he would stop the practice which has grown up of MPs clapping. And at that moment, the whole house burst into <laughs> applause with his comments. But I think Lindsay's going to be a great asset and is going to be quite um, an adornment to the entertainment of the nation. Me too. On my trip to Westminster this week, I managed to catch up with Katie Perrier. Katie is the former Director of Communications at Number 10 under Theresa May, and she's also worked for Boris Johnson. And Katie gave me a fascinating insight into the unique campaigning skills of Boris and how they contrast sharply with the rather more cautious campaigning skills of Mrs May. Um, Katie, everyone, everyone is familiar with Boris's public image. Um, what's he really like? He's a very complex character, really, Boris, because in some regards he is quite brash, he says the first thing that comes in his mind, and sometimes that's a nightmare for a spin doctor like me, but on other times he can be quite sensitive, quite caring, um, always wants to make sure you're okay, quite kind towards his staff, which is a nice trait. And so he's, he's a real mix between his kind of public image, uh, a bombastic kind of rustle the hair, let's get on with it, and then the quiet kind of reserved person likes to think a lot and obviously he's very intelligent and when he turns up to meet people uh, there's a certain reaction where they just want to engage with him they want to go for a pint with him or they want to go and chat to him um, men and women alike old and young he actually engages with people um, to my horror he would turn up to places and say um, I don't know much about this tell me more and I'd put him aside and say to him I spent all night briefing you on that to make sure that you were ready for the morning and I'm a bit cross and you keep on telling people that you don't know anything about it. And he said, no, Katie, they, I need to hear it from them. It's no good you telling me. I need to hear it from them. And, of course, people thought, great, Boris actually wants to listen to me. And so he'd be very attentive. And it was a great kind of skill to make sure that he was brought down from his Eton level to their level. And, and there's a story, isn't there, of how, how you, you were on the campaign, stump, campaign trail with him once and someone expressed their admiration for him in, in, shall we say, an unconventional way. In our, in our wisdom, we decided to go around a Routemaster bus twice around London, um, not forgetting that traffic's awful. And we, one of these days, we were in Romford, and we were in Romford Market, and someone shouted across, uh, Boris, you're the C-word, can't say it, but the C-word, but I still love you. Um, and that kind of was the nutshell of the campaign, really, because it didn't matter what kind of background those people had, they found something in common with Boris. Is, is, is there a potential problem? Because, because uh, I think some opinion polls have shown that he's, he's more popular with men than with women, and one can understand that kind of blokish appeal he's got. Isn't there a difficulty that in portraying this blokish, larkish image that he's putting female voters off? For other politicians, I'd say yes, absolutely. But he seems to be kind of a bit Teflon-like. Things bounce off him in a way that other politicians, it would ruin their careers. 
some of the things that he may have said in the past, I don't always agree with. And yet he seems to be able to kind of bumble through life without them getting too, people getting too wound up about it or indeed it having much of effect. I think he's just accepted now that, you know, I am warts and all. This is the Boris you get. And people like the authenticity of him. Mm. So they know he's not perfect. They know he's got flaws, but they don't really care. Now, he's got to win this election and do what Theresa May failed to do in the 2017 election. Now, you were working for her um, around that time. Describe for us the difference in working for Boris Johnson compared to Theresa May. You haven't got long enough. They're miles apart. Completely different people to work for. So Theresa May hated the media. She didn't want to participate in any interviews. She felt that it was almost intrusive. Why do they want to know this stuff about me? Why does anyone care? Isn't it just good enough that I just do my job? And Boris Johnson would be, right, when's the next interview? Come on then, let's go for it. Where with Boris, I'd have to try and reel him in and say, you've got to stick to the message. There's some serious campaign messages here and we want to make sure we can get them across. And he really did refine his kind of offer and his approach and his behaviour during that campaign to much more polished. Uh, whereas Theresa May, I'd, I'd be kind of just slowly trying to get this stuff out of her and so that she would perform a little bit better in front of journalists. And, and do you think Boris uh, can succeed where she failed, Katie? Yeah, I do. I, I do think he can succeed. If he tries to stick for as long as possible on the issue of I'm the one to get Brexit done, I think he'll win over voters from all different political parties and none. Katie's absolutely right. I mean, she's been operating around Westminster for as far back as I can remember, Simon. I used to employ her. She's a brilliant girl, uh, woman, um, and she is right. There is just something about Boris. There's something intangible. He kind of transcends a lot of the judgments you'd normally have about politicians. Many politicians with his kind of matrimonial record, um, they wouldn't have a chance of surviving. But he supersedes that. And it's interesting, Jonathan Dimbleby's got a show on Panorama tonight, where he's been on the campaign trail. And he said that um, one woman who's voted Labour all of her life came up to him and said, uh, I've never thought that I would ever vote Tory, but I'm voting for Boris Johnson. Why are you doing that? Because he's got balls of steel, she said. There's something about the fact that people think he's going to get this done. He's a man who can achieve things. And I think the fact that he did get a deal in such a short period has really played to his positives. And, and, and just to clear up one point, I think when that man shouted at Boris the C <laughs> word, um, he wasn't, wasn't conservative. No, he wasn't. <laughs> the Commons will lose over 1,000 years of combined parliamentary experience with more than 60 MPs preparing to stand down at this election and there may be more to come. Some of those not returning to Westminster include Philip Hammond, Ken Clark, and the Cabinet Minister, Nicky Morgan. I caught up with Nicky to find out why she's decided to bow out of the political arena. Nicky, what, what made you snap? Why? You, you cited the abuse that women MPs have got. Was it just that? Was there one incident that triggered it? Um, it's a whole combination of different uh, factors, uh, but um, people remember that there was a Saturday sitting of the House of Commons uh, a few weeks ago, uh, which um, ended in the deal not being uh, approved, that vote not happening, and the whole thing was just exasperating beyond belief. 
Um, and um, and I just thought, right, I'm going to go home to Leicestershire. And as I was, you know, heading to the train, uh, um, the guard recognised me. It's a service I use a lot. Uh, and he said, why don't you come to the front of the train? Because I think that, you know, you have sort of less aggro that way and all the rest of it. And I know that some of my colleagues who didn't do that, um, who were sitting with people, did get uh, some grief. And we know that some MPs had to be escorted um, off the estate by the police, an example. And I just thought, actually, um, why am I doing this? when actually the rest of my life, you know, particularly obviously contact time with my family um, has been put under such strain over the last couple of years and really just by the lifestyle of being an MP. But we, we, we've heard stories of MPs, particularly women MPs, um, being subjected to abuse. Yeah. What are the worst kind of threats? Well, or it's abuse? death. Give if people want you dead. I mean, you know, people sending you pictures of nooses. Um, you know, really? people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, people uh, saying that they're going to come and you know find a knife and and, and make sure that you know how angry they are and all, all sorts of things. The police response has got much much better, um, but the fact is. Um, as I think I've said, you kind of have to emotionally process all that. MPs are used to robust debate and we're also used to having aggrieved constituents. But the level of, you know, fury after the last couple of years is something I don't think any of us would have expected to have to deal with. And and has it affected the the way that you can... um interact or mi- mingle with, with your constituents, for example, in, in Loughborough. How, how's it affected that? Yes, I mean, sadly, obviously it means now that, for example, um, I would need to have somebody with me, at least one person, if I was going out to deliver leaflets. And when I've been on doorsteps in the past and somebody said, come in, have a cup of tea, or, or look, it's pouring with rain, come and have a chat with me out the cold, um, I would have said, yeah, of course, you know. Um, and now I would never, ever do mm. that. Standing in Loughborough Market, you've just got to be aware the whole time. At the back of your mind, you're wondering yeah. where there might be some idiot with a knife or well, give a shout or... something or, or certainly I mean you know shouting is that is in a way that the, the least of it but yeah whether somebody's going to do something uh, you know crazy um, and of course not just yourself it's the people around you you know the campaign team and I think the honest truth is that nobody who's even people close to you whether they're politically close to you they are campaign supporters or family don't really have that thing you are constantly looking around and evaluating the situation to see what is going on and, and, if, and if you were advising the young Nicky Morgan, who is about to enter politics now, would, would you say to that person, look, my, my advice is don't enter politics because, because it's a nasty business? No, I wouldn't say that because I still think it's the most fantastic uh, role to have. It is a true privilege to be elected by your local um, community. And I hope that perhaps, you know, the fact that we're having to um, to talk about all this, the fact that, you know, the government and others are having to, and the police, having to think about the abuse and intimidation of, of candidates at this election, perhaps is a wake-up call for all of us mm. that actually this is not the way we want to conduct our politics. Robust debate, yes, but when it changes into intimidation, threats of violence or threats of death, we've got to, we've got to make sure that we respond to that and make sure we all lift our game um, and be a bit nicer to each other. It makes me really sad to hear Nikki talking like that, Simon. I mean, we know how abusive the whole political environment's become, particularly for women. But there's sort of a new toxicity um, in society with the failure to deliver Brexit. You know, I've never known such antagonism. But, you know, to think that you can't even knock on doors anymore without having assistance, having some bloke there to protect you. I mean, she is a really top-rate politician. She's the kind of woman that we could have imagined becoming a leader. Um, And to think that we're losing women like this and so many of them at the kind of peak of their careers when they've served in cabinet, they've got the most to offer us back now and yet they're being driven out. And it's not just Tory women, it's, you know, Diane Abbott, um, Labour's frontbencher. She gets more abuse online than any other person. 
uh, in the whole political spectrum. I think it's it's just a tragedy to see someone like Nikki leaving. Mm. Well, I, I think one can only hope that people like Nikki Morgan, Amber Rudd, and, and one or two other women, they come back to politics at a later stage because they're still very young. Let's hope so. I hope so too. One of Jeremy Corbyn's biggest Labour critics, Frank Field, Labour MP for 40 years and a minister in Tony Blair's government, is fighting this election, but not as a Labour candidate. Frank was forced to leave his party after falling out with Corbyn over anti-Semitism, attacks on him by Trotsky's in his Birkenhead Labour Party in Birkenhead and various other matters. I went to chat to Frank this week at the Commons and I'll let him introduce himself. I'm a, a Member of Parliament for Birkenhead and at midnight all of us MPs become pumpkins and if we are re-elected we will be back as shiny coaches here in Parliament. Well, and I'm sure, Frank, that you'll be back here as a shiny coat. You've been a Member of Parliament since 1979. Um, until very recently, you were a Labour MP. Why are you not a Labour MP, Frank? Well, the, the real crux came in that we had, again, such a takeover by extremists in the Birkenhead Labour Party, upon wave upon wave of hatred of a group of people which has happened before, regularly, as you know, in Birkenhead, uh, who wished always to believe the worst, never to believe the best. And a group of us had made, I don't know, 20, 30 serious complaints about behavior to the National Labour Party, and none of them were treated seriously. Often, we never even had a reply to acknowledge the, uh, the receipt of our submissions. With that, and with the whole acceptance of anti-Semitism, so it's part of Labour's DNA now, I resigned the whip after being a member for 60 years. And what kind of Prime Minister do you think Jeremy Corbyn would make, Frank? I'm, my whole mind is concentrated on what sort of Member of Parliament Birkenhead will have. And I'm therefore standing so that people who remain true to the Labour Party tradition will be able to elect me as a voice which, while I can't yet have the Labour label, will be playing a part to transform the Labour Party. And, and what is the sort of Labour Party that you believe in, Frank, that you feel is no longer there? That uh, there will be a Labour Party which will emphasise social justice, but also a Labour Party which is equally strong on defence, on NATO, to accepting that we live in a a wicked world and that we have to make sure we can look after ourselves in that world. Is that, that one of the world. main areas where you differ with the leadership over defence? It's not just defence for God's sake, Simon. We're talking about whether this country can actually defend itself against evils the like of which we may not yet know. And in those circumstances we would actually want to be play a full part in NATO and that we weren't on the side of these corrupt dictators who just because they happen to call themselves left-wing have praise showered upon them by a Labour leadership. And, and who are the kind of people that Corbyn praises that you feel is not right? Well if you look at what the tragedy in South America, regime after regime, yes, has fallen to those who are evil and we're supposed to praise them because they come out with a certain language but they have evil intent. And I'm not on their side. I wish to see them replaced, not by pro-American regimes. I'm not that Id idiotic 
that's no great group of saints over there. But I mean, there are things in this country we know about, about freedom, about democracy, and about how, in, how to defend it. And that's the Labour Party that I stand for. And you, you feel that you represent real Labour? There's no question about it. But, but what, what's the point of you having my opinion? Because very shortly, within six weeks, Simon, the whole electorate of Birkenhead will tell us what they think. Well, so never mind about me trying to think of smart answers for your very difficult questions. The sovereignty, and what's so wonderful about elections, uh, resides with the people. And I'd be happy to talk to you again after the results are declared. I look forward to it, Frank. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Simon, I do hope he gets, Frankfield gets re-elected to um, Birkenhead. He is one of those great... I, I hate to say old-fashioned because traditional um, socialists. He's done a huge amount of work for social justice, cross-party. It's not just the defence brief. He's just one of those guys that everybody kind of loves, except for Jeremy Corbyn and his front bench and momentum. I mean, I just find it unfathomable. I really hope that the if he wins, I do hope he wins, I hope that it sends a message to Corbyn that you can't, hound people like Frank Field out of the Labour Party. And Simon, I understand that you've got a topical tune for us this week. Well, nobody was more upset than I was when England lost the Rugby World Cup final. But I must say, I thought it was wonderful, the celebrations in South Africa at the victory by the South African team. It was amazing. And in particular, because this was a truly multiracial South African team, the captain is a brilliant guy called C.O. Colosi, comes from one of the black townships. And my topical tune is the South African national anthem, uh, which was introduced by Nelson Mandela. And it was, it's called Nkosi Sikalele, and it was written in 1897 by a black Methodist preacher in Johannesburg who had the most wonderful name of Enoch Songtonga. And the first words, Amanda, of the, of the tune, which I know you're familiar with, go, I listened to it on... It goes, Malufakan yiswa ufondulwayo yiswa imitando oye tu kozi sikalela. And really it means... God bless Africa. But I defy anybody not to listen to this wonderful harmonies of the choir singing it and not sit there either with goosebumps or tears running down your cheeks. Well, that's all we've got time for. But don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk. And join us next week for more political chat and election updates. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. Goodbye. Goodbye.